Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Hello, everyone. My name is Carlos Espinal. I'm the host of This Much I Know. Uh, the reason why I'm introducing myself in this podcast is because uh, this podcast will be used on my guest's podcast a little bit later, so that way everyone knows who is talking. Our guest today is Will Beeson. He's part of the founding team of Civilized Bank, and he's also the creator and host at the ReBank podcast. And Will, first of all, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's it's always weird, right, when you flip the microphone around. You say always. I don't know. This is the first time. I've really? Done it, I think. No, second second podcast. I think so. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm excited because I've been as I, as I mentioned to you offline, I've been binging on your podcast this past few. Uh, and and I was it was funny. I was making some comments to my colleagues about some of the data, some of the guests you had mentioned, particularly some of the stuff from how millennials use financial services. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. And there's actually a report that came out uh, that one of my colleagues shared with me by Goldman Sachs. Uh, it's, it's titled Millennials Infographic, How the Millennial Generation Will Transform the Economy. So it's one of these interesting things maybe we'll add in the show notes based mm-hmm. upon some of the podcasts I heard from you. But back to the topic at hand, which is you and your life and how you got to, to do what you do and thoughts around the fintech space. So we always like to start off with what did you study in school? And what was the first thing you did after you graduated? All right. So when I started college, I was very much going to be an econ major because it was going to be all about business. Classic story, I'm sure. And um, anyway, made it through as an econ major, but picked up English along the way. So econ and English. And what did you do when you graduated with that degree? My first job out of school was... uh, as an analyst at City in New York. So this was 2007, right before everything blew up, when Wall Street was still the place to go to get rich. And did you keep the job or what happened? Well, I I did. Fascinating experience. So the first 12 months while I was at City, we basically laid off 10% of our headcount every quarter, uh, wrote down billions in... Uh, in bad loans, and you can imagine the the environment, the the, the atmosphere uh, during that time period. End of a year, I, I was ready to move on. Yeah, you know, great colleagues, great experience. New York's a great place, but yeah, you know, my my life was just going to take me somewhere else. And um, yeah, that, that that was clear to me. Managed to connect with a friend of a friend of a friend of a distant relative who had set up an investment boutique in Italy, which was the country that I wanted to move to. So in, in Rome, city of my dreams. Um, particular reason? You like the Romans? You like food? You uh, like Vespas? What, what is it? Uh, certainly the food, but uh, th- I think that may have come later. I mean, really, it was kind of like age 23. If I could live anywhere do anything, what would I spend my time doing? And hanging out in, uh, in sunny, uh, leisurely Rome seemed like a good thing to do. So, wow, fast forward uh, seven years from there, and I was moving from Rome to London. Having spent those, those seven years in Rome, we can so get in. Get seven in, years in Rome in a boutique yeah. investment bank. 
So I think the first maybe three or so were in a boutique investment bank. Mm-hmm. So we were doing a lot of work with with um, high yield and distressed European debt, a lot of kind of distressed and workout uh, type situations mm-hmm. in Italy. It was kind of some proprietary investment and some some brokerage uh, work. Fascinating. And um, effectively, it got increasingly closer to operating businesses. So starting out as an analyst at City, and it was much more in the uh, think very high level about how investments are made, what are the fundamentals, what are the important um, considerations, moving to this much more fast-paced, hands-on investment boutique where you saw the the results of your analysis often very quickly uh, due to the, the d- dynamic nature of these situations. From there, ended up at a basically um, kind of a, a merchant bank, like a mid-market uh, M&A and IPO advisory firm in Rome, one step closer to to businesses, so mm-hmm. kind of advising on on transactions. Um, and then from there, actually ended up in house at a at a family office in Italy that had made made some distressed investments. So it was, suddenly, it was it was actually inside companies working on the financial and operational restructuring of of legacy businesses. Effectively, mm-hmm. so um, I think the the business I was working on had been founded in the I think the early '60s as um, basically a consumer lending company. And fast forward, you know, whatever it was, 50 years uh, at, at that point, and Bank of Italy changed changed some of its rules. Uh, the company was left without a business model and needed to figure out how to transform a paper-based, agent network-based underwriting and, and debt administration operation into something uh, either suitable for the 21st century or at the very least preserve as much value as possible as mm-hmm. as an acquirer was found. So mm-hmm. yeah, that it was, I guess it was through that experience that I ended up starting to think about how technology can be applied to traditional financial services for revolutionary results. I, I want to return back to this idea of your experience in Italy because I think it's interesting to see how fintech has evolved in different geographies and we think of Europe as one cohesive thing in terms of financial services, but you know, it isn't right. And, um, and so I'd be, love to hear your thoughts now when, when we get to that part of the podcast, but all right. So after Italy, where did, where did you end up? You said you moved to the UK. Yeah. So after, after Italy moved, moved here, uh, to London where we, where we are now and, um, had been, had been connected with, some people, the other members of the, the founding team of uh, of Civilized Bank, uh, we've been kind of working in the in the background for a while, trying to pull pull the pieces together. And um, it was very very conveniently soon after I got to London that we um, raised our first money and started building the bank. For for those that are not familiar with Civilized Bank, do you want to walk us through a little bit, kind of what that what what it does, how the idea came about, um, and maybe any initial concerns you had that have now since been eradicated. Yeah, sure. So simply the the business model is creating a branchless bank for small and medium-sized businesses, 1 to 25 million pounds of annual turnover. But 
maintaining the role of the human bank manager. So if you, if you kind of rewind a few decades, uh, there's this concept certainly in, in the UK and, um, and I'm sure in other countries as well of the, 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 the local bank manager who, who had P and L ownership, who had some, some credit underwriting discretion, uh, for, for his or her branch, who knew the business community in the area, who knew the economic situation in the area, who was something of a, of a generalist and who was effectively able to make quick decisions in support of of businesses uh, when when they needed it. A lot of that went away with kind of the the centralization of of credit functions um, in part through technology, in part through through cost pressures, compliance changes. And over time, the, the, the large incumbent banks in the UK ended up underserving that segment because it Effectively, it, it costs more to lend to small businesses, kind of like for like, dollar for dollar, than it does to lend to a large business. Uh, cost of processing the loan is, is more or less fixed. So mm-hmm. why lend $1 million when you can lend $100 million? Mm-hmm. So with new technology that represents effectively 95% of the, of the stack, you know, back end to, to front end, with a human relationship manager layer on top of that uh, individual who basically takes civilized bank on an iPad to the customer onboards the customer in person uh, understands the customer's business and and can actually yeah. uh, make a loan mm-hmm. to the customer on behalf of the bank again supported by excellent technology excellent software credit risk decisioning uh, tools and all the rest but basically Bring that human interface, uh, that empowered human interface, back to the customer uh, locally in their community, and do it in a very cost-effective way, given given the technology behind it. So that's that's what Civilized Bank is um, is doing. I think the the opportunity is is one that I don't think is lost on many. In fact, it's um, kind of this this SME play uh, in in the UK has gotten increasing attention over the past few years as the, the RBS Williams and Glynn remedy package was, was approved, um, I guess first by the, the treasury and then, um, and then, uh, the, the European government long story short, UK stepped in to prop up RBS. They still own a massive chunk of the bank. They're trying to figure out how to exit that position. Haven't been able to find a good way of doing it. And so one of the, one of the solutions looks like RBS effectively funding the the advancement of its direct competitors uh, in in this in this SME space. So as a result, more people have kind of been uh, been been looking at it. Uh, however, I suppose our our journey uh, you know, now dating back a few years, yeah, you know, effectively grew out of the the financial crisis, and um, so you had kind of Basel three plus credit losses plus you know a general lack of liquidity in the market. The first customers to lose access to Finance were were small businesses, and that funding gap in in the market, um, you know, continued to to exist for, for years afterwards, and in fact, still exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, num- number of players, especially digital lenders, who have um, who have uh, popped up, who have looked to to service 
segments of that market, generally the kind of the sub 1 million pound turnover businesses, you know, working capital loans, unsecured loans of you know maybe 10 to 150K, whereas we think we have a, a, a meaningfully differentiated proposition in that one to 25 million pounds, slightly more complex business with secured long-term borrowing needs. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and I know that you mentioned when we started the podcast that A, that this podcast is not about Civilized Bank and B, that anything you say subsequent to this is entirely yours and not the bank's. But maybe just to explore with, within that context, explore a little bit more about Civilized Bank First of all, you know, there's been a lot of competitors that are popping up left and right trying to attack different versions of it, you know, whether it be like Revolut for Business or anything like that. What what would you say your main competitors are? Yeah, maybe just expand the scope of the conversation beyond Civilized Bank specifically and look at it more from the standpoint of two fintech enthusiasts Mm -hmm. that think about this sort of thing on a very regular basis. If, you know, if we're talking about the the small business, the medium-sized business space when it comes to banking and, mm-hmm. and financial services provision, then then happy to answer that mm-hmm. question. Sure. Um, so the so I, I think if we take a step back and think about to date, how can how how has technology been most effectively deployed? It's highly replicable experiences, products, services. In the case of small business banking, it's often automated credit scoring based on some relatively strict rules about who qualifies for what sort of loan, uh, maybe some multiples of turnover or profitability, looking at, you know, I don't know, maybe traditional uh, metrics like, like net debt to, to EBITDA, i.e. capacity to, to repay. And then pooling those single small loans into large portfolios of hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of single loans, which then effectively benefit from you know, risk diversification principles. And that's that's been a, a boon for the the SME segment uh, here in the UK. There's you know, there's certainly issues around trust, around reliability, around if you're a business, is it really just the money you want? People say it's the money you want. We, we think it's the money businesses want, but is there something there about, well, I, I know Barclays, they've been around for a hundred plus years. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that, you know, they're stable, they're solid. I can trust them. Mm-hmm. They're no doubt, you know, upstanding individuals. They're good guys. They're going to do what they say they're going to do versus, an online lending startup that that just popped up that I haven't heard of that doesn't have a track record. There's a massive emotional component mm-hmm. uh, to to all this, but um, no. In, in terms of services that have, that have come up that are that are very valuable to SMEs, it's definitely that digital lending uh, piece. It's definitely some of the the uh, FX currency, uh, easy to use international accounts, uh, the the Revolut for Business that you mentioned. Uh, Starling uh, Bank in the UK has a a single director uh, business account. Coconut is is another uh, SME focused bank, and I think in, in some of these situations maybe bank with with quotation marks because it may not 
next necessarily be licensed banks, but they're offering yeah. bank-like products and services. Tide. I think all of those players are, well, and, and I'm surely generalizing, but their target market is the sole traders. It's businesses with maybe less than 10 employees. It's businesses that, that have needs which can easily be automated, mm. which I believe is fundamentally different from a, say, a 100-employee business with a three-person finance department, an owner-operator who's been running the business for the past 30 years, who uh, owns machinery, owns uh, production facilities, mm. owns warehouses, maybe has subsidiary companies, and is looking to maybe roll up some commercial mortgage, you know, existing commercial mortgages into a single new facility with an existing provider on a 15-year term with a three-year fixed period, then a 50% interest-only period. Yeah. Those, those more complex deals, which, again, because they're small in, in, in traditional terms, don't move the needle for the incumbents, those yeah. with, the, with the balance sheets and probably the risk appetites in some cases to, to support those, but that, um, that are kind of beyond the scope of what's easy to automate now. Yeah. So I, I think um, Oak North is doing a phenomenal job in this space. Mm. Um, also a new bank, um, maybe they started in 2015 or 16, but one of the, I think the first, but certainly the first new bank to, to achieve profitability just over a year, maybe. Centralized Credit Committee, no branches, effectively inviting businesses to come to London in, in many cases yeah. to, to, to pitch to pitch deals and then and financing deals uh, on, on that basis. Yeah. But there is that kind of face-to-face -face element. There's yeah. an exchange, there's responsiveness, there's transparency on the part of the bank, uh, which I think I think goes a long way in, in meeting meeting the needs of, of this segment. So it's, it's interesting because you know I, thanks for, for that answer. The FinTech space, when we started investing back in 2007, was first of all like a, a, a very difficult space because of all the regulation and all the different controls that banks had. And as that's been chiseled away, and now with the open banking and PST2 and, and initiatives like those, you know, further unlocking the, the incumbents from monopolizing all the different services, there's just been sort of this gradual unlocking of, of bits of the value chain. and. And I guess with any value chain, you, when you diagram it, typical sort of Accenture PowerPoint style, there's a left and there's a right, and there's like a series of arrows, and you go through them. And and actually, you could argue that maybe it starts off at the at the government or the regulatory, or you could argue it starts at the at the bank, and then how you uncouple all the services, and then you know what you've done in your podcasts is is attack everything from the the different the customer types. You've attacked different types of Sort of offshoot services, like for example, mortgages or, or insurance, or now you know all loosely contained within the category of fintech. But when it boils down to it, at the end of the day, it's where do I put my money? What do I do with it? And what additional services I get? And so, you know, we've seen a lot of innovation across each one of those things, and I want to see how much of those we can cover in, in this podcast. And if we start off with obviously what where you you came from, which is you know the, the banking side of, of things, what sectors? And which services at this point do you feel are overhyped? 
Like what, where have we gone to now in fintech from 2007 being nothing now to having at least five different B2C facing current account type services with one born every other day? Like across the entire spectrum, be as inclusive as you want. If you want to include mortgages, do that. You know, if you want to include insurance and do that, but like across that whole service and across all the podcasts you've done, top five most hyped. I will be the first to admit that the payments space is no doubt best spoken to by a specialist. Mm. There are some massively successful, massively valuable companies in the payment space. There are also some some absolute flops and and, and have been uh, mm. you know for for the past number of years, including from you know, the likes of some of the largest um, you know, tech big tech uh, players. There is so much margin in payments that it's and so much volume that it's natural that that's a space that um, that that technology and an opportunity for automation that technology seeks to service. I think that a significant amount of work has been done in payments. If mm. I were starting a company today, it would not be in the payment space. Mm. Now, of course, you know, just same disclaimer that everyone offers. That's not to say a yeah. successful payments company couldn't be started in tomorrow. Everyone, unless you're a VC <laughs> in the next 24 hours, nobody's going to hold you to it. <laughs> and um, where, where I do think there's opportunity, mortgage in, insurance, I think this is probably your next question, so I'm sure I'm, I'm anticipating this, but I think that mortgages, uh, insurance, and um, and wealth tech offer offer significant opportunities. I do want to fully answer your, your question, though, which is where where what's overhyped. I, I don't think the new bank thing is overhyped. I think that we haven't seen kind of the other side of, of what that's going to, to look like. We've, we've, seen, we've seen the marketing side, we've seen the user acquisition side, and you know, I guess specifically maybe I'm talking about the likes of, of Revolut and, and Monzo, who have done a phenomenal job uh, against much skepticism at building customer bases. I think that the natural next step, whether or not those companies feel it's part of their DNA, whether those companies feel that that's what they set out to do, but the, the, the lending component of the business model, the banking business model is core. I don't see long-term successful retail banks or business banks uh, that, that don't leverage lending as a core component of, of what they're doing. And mm. in part, that's because of the, the economics. In part, that's because of what I see as, as, as eventual investor pressures, market pressures mm. uh, to optimize, optimize value creation. That's two. Got three more to go. Oh, wow. <laughs> We're going for five. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I suppose. How about, I mean, like, for example, do you think that if, if we wanted to abstract it out into B2C versus B2B, do you feel that, yes, you mentioned that retail banking without lending is pretty much doomed, um, but do you think that the B2B side of fintech has more opportunities in the B2C, or do you think that B2C... It's that the brands that were going to be made in this wave of innovation have been made. It's just now seeing how they mature. 
and, and therefore like just B2C products in general are, are, are tapped out mm-hmm. because like we, we're seeing ad in the tube every day. Yeah. You know, what, what, maybe that helps. Yeah. No, it, that, that does help. And I, and I particularly like your, uh, that, that phrase wave of innovation, this wave of innovation, because yes, there's been tremendous innovation, new companies from, from zero to, to household names. Mm-hmm. But if, if I really step back, has the this kind of fintech promise been delivered mm-hmm. where based on the technology that we have based on the the you know the customer experiences that we're used to in in other areas of of tech based on what's possible has has fintech run its course like has our payments as easy as they should be is banking as easy as it should be is borrowing money as easy as it should be is understanding your current financial position as easy as it should be is applying for a mortgage, buying a house, maybe mortgage isn't even the right product, you know, mm-hmm. like there, there's been, there's been some UX innovation and there's been some product delivery innovation. <clears throat> I don't think we've really had the experience innovation that's, that's possible and that we will eventually see. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's the next wave of, of FinTech. Um, but I, personally view you know a a near infinite future future roadmap for fintech from here uh, in terms of of experience innovation hmm. well you know that, that leaves the the universe quite open and there are a lot of things that i think have materially changed for several industries within the fintech world since the, this current innovation wave so for example i don't think people I don't think we'll go back to the days of the wealth manager that is completely decoupled from a digital support platform. Like, I think those days are gone. Like the sort of black box wealth manager, there's probably some generations that, that will continue to use that for a while. But like, whether you're like a wealth manager with a nutmeg type support platform or whether you just directly interface with something like that, even no matter what level of, of fidelity the product has, I think that those kinds of things will have permanently changed. What, what other... In, yeah, I think that's true. But at the same time, yeah, and I do make an effort to maintain a kind of global perspective about these topics. You got me there. Well, no, <laughs> as, as of course, I was just talking about the UK. Fair enough. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. No, carry on. Carry no, on. Not, not, <laughs> and not even global in the sense of, um, of international covering every country, but yeah. global in the sense of serving products and how but, they get consumed. So, in, in terms of the demographic that yeah. we probably engage most with, you know, those who, who work near us, we're sitting here in, in Shoreditch right now, 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I think 25% of the UK pension market mm-hmm. is defined contribution mm-hmm. and 75% remains defined benefit, mm-hmm. i.e. the type, you know, that you're grandpa had uh, when you know they went to work for the utility company and they were guaranteed like a certain percentage of their you know ending salary or whatever when when they stopped working that stuff takes so long to flow through the the entire system because anyone who started a contract can I stop you there yeah because that's exactly that's exactly the point that I wanted to get to which is just like there's velocity of money there's velocity of services and sort of, you know, cash turnover. And, and what I think maybe what you're identifying is that there is opportunities within fintech that resemble very much ones that we've currently tapped into. 
but that are crippled by the speed at which the service is procured by the individuals who benefit from it. And so in this case, this one, this pension product, it, it's not that in, innovation and technologies and startups don't have solutions for it. It's just that it's, it's crippled by the fact that the consumption cycle for it is, is so slow mm-hmm. that it will be maybe in the next wave of products that will make it or a company that's so well funded that it can survive a long sales cycle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's fair. And, uh, and totally agree there. I think the other place where we'll, where, where we haven't really scratched the surface, um, you know, d- despite the fact that, you know, mint.com started in whatever it was, 2007, mm. just the, the integration across various sources of, Otherwise, you know, private private data, uh, i.e., you know, different accounts um, and visibility, and not only visibility, but importantly, uh, interaction and almost almost interoperability between different mm-hmm. types of accounts. And I'm sure we'll get into this with some of the open banking stuff. Yeah. But basically, the difference between seeing your combined account balance in one place. Mm-hmm. And actually being able to adjust your your 401k holdings via the one interface mm. that, that you want to interact with. Mm. Um, so not, not just the data visibility, but it's actually the, the ability to go in, make changes, um, especially when people start thinking about these virtual assistants that are rebalancing your portfolio for you. If you can't implement the changes across platforms, then then that sort of service doesn't mm-hmm. exist. All right, well, let's, let's jump straight to that. Because I, think this, I think there's a couple of themes, and I haven't mapped them out in my head fully, but there are a couple of themes that tie all these concepts together and predicting the future. So one of them is the regulations and the, the willingness of financial service providers to integrate and share data. So, you know, GDPR last year, whole mess and a lot of people panicked and, and a lot of people probably have gone under or overboard. You know, the, the hope that PSD2 brings and open banking brings, but in general, with those two things in mind, how they've been affecting the ecosystem and what do you predict when you can consider the fact that there's an optimistic view, which is that more services, more data, I can transfer from this service to that service, I can import my data from that, it means I can get an easier loan because it takes money from that. Or the apocalyptic one, which is insurance now is going to have visibility into your certain spending patterns, which will affect your rate, or your mortgage will be uh, affected by some variables associated with your life insurance because of its awareness of your health state. And so what, what's your prediction of the future when you consider both the fact that you can look at it with both those lenses? Yeah. I think my... My immediate prediction is that it will take longer than than I hope. Mm. That, that it'll take longer than I expect it to. Um, and, and I think that has first and foremost to do with the willingness of the most meaningful players in, in the market to actually support this sort of data sharing. Um, at least the the data sharing of the of the automated variety. Mm. The you know these open banking APIs, which uh, are to quote a friend recently who um, who built a, a wealth tech proposition through an open banking API 
I can get one of the 250 data feeds that I could get from a direct integration that I had with one of my partners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can pre-populate, you know, name and address Mm -hmm. right now on, you know, to, to, to a new account opening journey, but you know, you certainly can't um, apply a financial plan and automate that through mm-hmm. execution uh, across you know range of asset classes. So I think in order for that to happen, we're still you know years and years away from that. I think that in terms of you know, to, to your to your question specifically, GDPR equals structure around data ownership and data management. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing for a lot of what we're hoping will happen. It also importantly um, creates a an obligation or requirement for for data transportability, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the components which is maybe undervalued at the moment, but that will be increasingly relevant over time. Mm-hmm. I.e., I as you know, bank customer or indeed customer of, of of any organization can ask ask for my data and and take that somewhere else. So there's there's there are potentially workarounds to fully functional. APIs in in time. Do I expect great experiences or do I expect some of these more dystopian developments? Both. Interestingly, and you know, I guess without without wanting to sound too provocative, you know, if, if suddenly um, you know th- there's a risk that because I'm buying cigarettes and because uh, card providers are now showing kind of line item breakdowns on on receipts, i.e. greater data visibility, that's being shared with an insurer and I'm paying a higher premium for my insurance. Personally, as a non-smoker, I wish everyone would quit. So if that's an incentive for people to make healthier lifestyle decisions, that's great. You know, it actually reduces the, the economic burden on on uh, on society. Of course, there are all sorts of of uh, you know crazy, unethical, and, and immoral uses of of similar types of data points. Um, you know, of, of course, uh, regulation around what's uh, what's what's allowed and what isn't will need to be shaped the same way that you know usury lending laws exist. Um, it you know it, it it will come and of course uh, you know in the management of this just like in the management of of AI and a whole number of other new technologies we need to be you know show foresight take it on on, on the front foot and, and and be willing to um to to be be responsible as we as we start to delve into this world mm-hmm. now if you look at the the cost to acquire customers in this space in some cases startups have had to. They project long, long-term views on when they're going to go cash flow break-even, or, or what size of, and whether we're talking about insurance products, or we're talking about, you know, uh, wealth management or, or banking services. Some argue that this space is winner-takes-all space. You know, where network effects and, and AUM and, and big data across multiple different services is what it takes to win, and. You could see where, A, the temptation as that winner, monopolist winner, you can then now offer these services cross within your grouping, but also with visibility on the data because it's all within one thing. So it's 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 actually the apocalyptic scenario, but because it's a winner-take-all scenario rather than because of some sort of open banking standard that people abused. 
What do you think of that? Do you think that we'll we'll see a future five, six, seven, ten, fifteen years from now governed by two or three big names coming from you know some geographies that then have all financial services as part of the way that they made it work, or do you see that this is one that will continue to be subfractured into fractures which are all interoperable? I think that's a great question, and uh, right now we see this world of you know independent standalone or rather increasingly through fintech we're creating this world of independent standalone products products and, and, and services i don't expect that to continue i wholly uh, expect rebundling to, to to use the term to um to happen because at the end of the day for mass market adoption you need simplicity and and ease of use so so i do expect roll-ups into into the winners, uh, you know, single larger providers. I think that unlike, you know, maybe some pure play tech types of businesses, which which maybe don't operate in regulated environments, you know, the the WhatsApps and the and the, and the Facebooks of the world. I, I you know I do think that for some time to come, national regulations, differences in in standards, legal differences will mean that the ability for any one player to quickly scale globally in a regulated space is unlikely. There are unregulated opportunities, probably like interface layer type plays. So if someone else is doing the regulated stuff locally and you're kind of stitching that together and, and owning, owning the front end. I think it's totally possible that that, that sort of thing becomes a winner take all space and and the you know the data ownership data processing analytics insight that's derived as a function of 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 being effectively the the, the first mover at at scale could um you know could could exacerbate that that winner takes all play absolutely mm-hmm. um i think you know if you, if you look at fintech verticals i e insurance versus mortgages versus um, you know retirement savings versus you know, on and on I, th- I think some of those verticals are more country specific culture specific mm-hmm. and less likely to to, to, to experience a, a winner takes all kind of international or multi-market play but things like you know payments uh, yeah could totally happen hmm. scary times don't want to certainly make it sound like I'm scared, but you know I am scared a little bit. You know what could happen? Scared that you might miss uh, one of the uh, the winners. No, no, no. I'm confident <laughs> we've already made that investment. All right, perfect. Yeah, I'm confident about that. No, no. It's more of like it's funny. You know, you look at how these services will integrate, and and I think that's why you see this constant uh, uh, argument from the crypto world around providing an alternative infrastructure so that it it is controlled more by by a decentralized group of people rather than, than, than one entity that, that starts off maybe like benevolently offering a payment solution, but then leverages social data and other things into becoming a bit of a, of, of a, a sort of a card that, that prevents you from doing anything unless you're in that card ecosystem or, or, you know, a theoretical card, you know, so th- there is a little bit of that I'm, I'm, I'm worried about, but you know, it's, it's just part of, like the AI apocalypse has that same appeal to it. Everybody, I think, is, is attracted to this. And and I interviewed recently um, 
the author of a book, which I'm not going to uh, divulge just yet because the podcast hasn't come out yet, but it was, um, it's a really interesting conversation about optimism and how these things will play out and what it will unlock and the financial freedom people will have and the, the access to financial services, the access to better priced products. So I think that there's, there's part of that as well. I don't want to make it sound like it's all, it's all negative, but yeah, like if you look at even things like wealth management, I mean, that's been democratized, right? And you look at insurance, it's, it's now more approachable. You look at mortgage comparisons, it's a hell of a lot more approachable than it ever was before. You know, we're, we're investors in Trussell. And, and, you know, it, it's, we've, when we've gone through our investments, we've tried to figure out which bits of the value chain have, has yet to be democratized and sort of try to tackle that. And there's some that, that are kind of harder to because of the nature of how they operate. Like, for example, savings products, they're a little harder to democratize because the returns on them aren't, particularly great so that there's very little business models that seem to function within that space. So I've seen a lot of companies in that space of savings not work unless there's a wealth management, which then becomes an asset under management issue. What, and you've done so many podcasts in your podcast, what, what are the things that have most excited you during those interviews for this hopeful future that you're like, actually, that is really cool. That is a really refreshing view on a, a sort of a utopian worldview that is enabling something that was previously controlled by a centralized authority or whether it's a service that was previously just limited to the one percenters and, and now is democratized. What, what in that universe of podcasts you've done that you've just been like, wow, this, this is, this is really cool. Yeah. Well, this is going to sound like the most boring answer, but I think that you know, often boring ones are, are, are maybe most, most true. And, and in this case, I believe most impactful, I, I think the most impactful, like, uh, kind of forward-looking, optimistic development is is the way that robo advisors have impacted pricing market wide. So, like something as simple as Vanguard cutting the costs of its funds to you know five basis points or, or, or wherever they are at the moment. I mean, that creates trillions of dollars of wealth for investors, for retirees, for savers mom and pop over, over the years. I mean, that, that unlocks more value than, uh, than, you know, than, than some of the most mm. you know, noteworthy blockchain ICO mm. types of, uh, t- types of headlines. So, you know, not sexy, but if, if, I mean, frankly, the, the impact of FinTech, if you think about, you know, investment made into FinTech versus, um, you know, in, in, in absolute dollar terms, it would be interesting to think about how much value is being created for society just as a result of Lord those annual you know, ongoing yeah. uh, fees of charge by and not just Vanguard, but of course everyone, everyone who's, uh, who's chasing to, to keep up. That's an interesting, interesting point. What do you think will be a service that we have come to expect to pay for that will be absolutely commoditized five years from now that we will just be like, well, this is free. This is like, this is just... It should be free, hmm. and that and that current service providers will struggle in monetizing. You could argue current accounts are kind of there, but that, that's a tricky one because free to the consumer. That's like strings attached. Free, yeah. Um, well, yeah, and yeah. Forget the stat, but it's something like fifty-five percent of 
current accounts are paid for in the UK, or maybe it's 45%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, you know, those who go into overdraft and, and, and therefore pay for it are basically you know, bearing the burden of, of the cost of operating current accounts for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. How much validity there is in that statement, uh, I don't know. But um, a, a stat that I've heard shared, hmm. I mean, I, I, I like to think that um, the, co- the cost of payments in, in a lot of cases, um, you know, whether it's, well, I guess for, uh, for any American listeners out there, you try to do a, a wire transfer in, in the States, fine. It's like not a standard uh, type of payment, but, um, or send money abroad. Yeah. Probably have dollars in the States. Try, try to send mm-hmm. money over here through your bank. It is outrageous how much, like hundreds of dollars to send, to send a few grand. Yeah, um, and it's you know between the 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 fee to actually make the payment, which is you know in and of itself, I don't know twenty bucks, fifty bucks, yeah. and and this you know hidden uh, hidden exchange rate that uh, that isn't uh, isn't all that openly shared, and it's just yeah, just an absolute ripoff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, we've seen a lot of that with the transferwises of of the yeah. world uh, and and the revolutes and. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that that's uh, where a lot of the early customer growth came from. I look forward to the day when the incumbents in the, the banking space. So I think if I'm not mistaken, JP Morgan recently um, reduced the cost of, of some of its um, investment type services. Mm-hmm. I, you know, they, they've launched uh, Fin, a digital bank in the U.S. Maybe they'll be the ones that lead the charge in, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of cutting uh Cutting these payment rates, which are which are so ridiculous. Hmm. So, one of the fun things that we see as patterns over the years, and you've been in the industry long enough, is is this idea of a bundling and unbundling, bundling and unbundling. You know, where the unbundling is when there's a, some big monopolist or some big bank that has all these services inclusive within its services offered, but then because they're so so overpriced or so crap that then there's opportunity for startups to come and chisel away with it with individual propositions. Little by little, you always you start having all these startups that you now subscribe to as an alternative to the main bank. And somebody decides to do a roll-up, brings them all together. Now you're back to being bundled. And then the cycle goes back and forth. And we've seen some of that already. You know, so A lot of the services that big banks offer being unbundled. What parts of the fintech value chain do you feel have yet to unbundle? And which parts do you think are rebundling? What hasn't unbundled yet? Fundamentally, I don't think I don't think banking for the majority of the population has not been unbundled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you could argue that that Monzo and Starling are unbundling the the current account, and I think in many cases looking via something like a, a marketplace to kind of rebundle it mm-hmm. again back into effectively a, a different different formation. Hmm. I mean, like one of the interesting things that we were talking about when we were talking about civilized bank is this idea of relationship management associated with debt and whether or not it's ever possible to have the current account, the debt requirement and provisioning and the relationship management be three separate things, whether that does effectively have to belong uh, to one entity because of the nature of it. And uh, just maybe thoughts on, yeah. on that. No, it, it, it's an interesting question. And, and yeah, I mean, I think if you start to, to look at almost like specific process flows, you could imagine components mm-hmm. of that being being decoupled. Um, and, I, and I think uh, your, your example is, 
is one of those. Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, there's the, uh, there's kind of the, the, the economics of it. On the other hand, there's the alignment of interests, i.e. like what sorts of outcomes are, are produced. You know, I, I suppose yeah, if, if we if we take things to their their extreme, anything could be unbundled, mm. like the you know gig economy, task rabbit, all these you know mm. various concepts that you know even twenty years ago would have seemed bizarre. Which which you know, certainly technology enables you to do. Therefore, extrapolating that that out certainly, um, I guess, wouldn't be surprised by further uh, further unbundling of of even components of, of single flows that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of as, uh, as, as independent of each other. I think maybe kind of to that point, is it to that point? Um, True Accord, it's a U.S. command, True Accord is the name. And it's basically, um, it's like applying software to um, effectively debt collection. Mm-hmm. So past due borrowers, uh, how do you approach them in the right way? Mm-hmm. Through email. I don't know if they do uh, any, any telephone work, but um, basically, how do you craft the message in such a way that that most entices them to pay? Mm. And yeah, you know, there have always been standalone debt collection agencies, generally with uh, with relatively poor reputations. But mm. um, yeah, you also have collections teams at, mm. uh, at at big banks. Um, is is collection something that? that each organization should do on its own or are there better, smarter ways of doing that? I haven't seen anything like that in the, in the UK. Hmm. So you started your career at this really interesting period where you saw the sort of the collapse of, of, of the financial uh, world because of bad loans. And I'm curious as to having lived through that, having seen that from the inside and then seeing it not only in the US but also seeing part of it and the recovery of it in Europe, what things do you think are happening at the moment that would be early indicators of, of, of something like that? Where, where would it come from? Like, you know, is this wave of fintech innovation generating a series of products that, that almost create um, a need to be subsidized through venture capital money, but then it will ultimately be the, the downfall? Or do you think it's, it's premature and, and this is, it's so small and so irrelevant that in the big picture it's, it's not related? I guess to, to your your kind of comment before about fintechs starting to have solved problems now, the you know, the, the the extent of the you know the extent of which we may not actually see mm-hmm. for years to come. Um, yes, I, I I am concerned about some of the, mm-hmm. the developments. I think um, there were stats out recently about how the 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 U.S. unsecured um, you know personal loan um, loans outstanding is, is higher now than it was pre-crisis mm-hmm. and uh, something like I can't remember but you know the, the, a third of that or so is um, maybe more is from fintechs mm. so oh wow I didn't know it was that high yeah so is is ease of borrowing you know if, if I can you know three taps and I've got an extra 10 grand in my bank account no, is 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 that sound from a risk management perspective? Is it is it healthy from a a, a societal standpoint? Um, you know, does it perpetuate this um, kind of desire to to live on credit? You know, it certainly 
certainly making uh, some entrepreneurs and, and investors quite wealthy. But frankly, you know, frankly, that's the same. That's the same story pre two thousand seven. It's um, it's been the story mm. time and again throughout history. Technology doesn't change that. Yeah, um, accelerates it basically, but yeah. it doesn't change it. And so, how have you seen different? Ge- I mean, this is the question that I, I, I mentioned to you earlier when we we're talking about Italy and geographies. How have you seen different countries manage um, fintech innovation? Like Europe, as I mentioned before, you know, seems especially to America like a the EU and the EU as a, as a collective. But you know, the reality is that there's quite a bit of different consumer habits. Forget like regulation or passporting or anything like that. Just consumer habits. How would you describe the challenges both of of current fintech companies in expanding in internationally? Maybe just keep it to Europe if you want to. Uh, in in being able to deal with regulation, difference in regulation, prohibitions of, that we currently have in place that will prevent this from going as big as as, as we'd like, and then lastly, any kind of localized limitations that you see will paralyze any fintech companies from entering into it. That's, it, it, it's a great question. I think that, um, and, and you know, this is, this is no doubt informed by, uh, by the you know, number of years that I've lived in, in continental Europe, Italy specifically, it, it's, it is, it's just fundamentally different culturally than the UK, mm-hmm. than the US. Savings is important. Property ownership is important, and and not the sort of like aspirational. I want to own my own home and and raise a family. But like, if people have cash, they put it under a mattress or they buy a building. Yeah, that's what people do with their money. They generally don't trust banks all that much. There are you know, like kind of financial advisors, investment advisors associated with banks. They're Traditionally, I suppose there, there certainly has been, been that sort of market. On a more or less regular basis, you'll, you'll read about you know, such and such scandal pensioners who uh, lost all their money through some you know, Ponzi scheme or you know, debt, debt issuer who you know, raised money on, on, on falsified information. Plus, the, the adoption of, of technology in, in different countries happens at different mm. rates. And, and a lot of that is, is cultural. I think that basically what, what we've, what we've seen in, in both the UK and, and the US in terms of fintech excitement has been a, uh, a direct result of society's willingness to adopt new technology based solutions related to money. I don't think that in, uh, so in, in Southern Europe, the, there's the same willingness to embrace technology, almost, you know, the, the, the techno worship that you, that you get in, in a lot of parts of, um, of, of the US and UK. So I, yeah, I think that that absolutely will kind of s- slow down the growth of, of some of these fintech plays in, in other European countries. That said, there you know, could very well be, um, be, be more tech tech interested mm. countries that uh, that I'm not uh, personally as as familiar with, but yeah, one is kind of speed and willingness of adoption. One is trust of of technology. Um, one is I guess importance of a human component, mm-hmm. whether it's the human relationship itself or whether it's an inherent trust in if a human does it, then they know what they're doing. If a machine does it, I don't know. And, and I think in part also it's 
demand for different products is different in, in different countries. So we've mentioned that unsecured consumer lending in, in, in the U.S. to a lesser extent in, in the U.K., to a much lesser extent in, in certain European countries. Mm-hmm. That said, there, you know, there, there, there are other types of products, maybe, maybe savings products that, uh, that are better suited for, uh, for other, other European countries than, than for the UK or the US. Hmm. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing what those are. We always like to end with a, a few couple fun questions. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever told you you have a slight resemblance to Jack Bauer. Oh, from 24 right. <laughs> so we'll go with the first one which is if you could if you had to be a superhero which one would you be and what superpower would you have wow I'd like to um, I'd like to claim that I've never thought about this but of course that would be a lie, <laughs> come on man <laughs> we all had a childhood we all had a childhood I mean it's it's tough not to say Superman I feel like just given that the He's the generalist of the superheroes, right? Yeah. It's funny. I was, I was listening to an analysis of the, the decline of interest in Superman. Mm. I forget where I was listening to it. But it was around the fact that Superman, as he evolved, had less and less weaknesses. And as a consequence, became less and less interesting, interesting. to people because it's hard to relate to something that has no flaws. Yeah. And, and, and well, I, don't, I don't know. If- do I want to prioritize relatability as a superhero or <laughs> just, just asking? Yeah, right? exactly. yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. What do you think we'll look back on today? Uh, sorry, in the future that today is admissible the same way that we look back on slavery, for example, and think, oh my goodness, how did that happen? So in the future, we'll eating look back animals, on eating animals. Yeah. Wow. And I don't necessarily mean eating meat mm-hmm. or animal products. Mm-hmm. But killing animals and eating them mm-hmm. as our you know, primary source of, of protein and you know, one of the primary sources of nutrition, absolutely. Fair enough. Maybe maybe it ends up being lab grown. Maybe it ends up being whatever it is. But treatment of treatment of animals. And if you had to start a, another startup right now, any anything, like it, it wouldn't regulation wouldn't stop you. But it has to be in fintech. Which one would it be? What 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 segment would it be? Well, I, I think there's most value to be value to be created for society through through wealth tech wealth tech fair enough we always like to give uh, the last opportunity in this case to because you have a podcast to plug all right all right anything you want to plug so maybe this is a chance for you to plug your podcast uh maybe some highlights and stuff yeah great well um everyone should definitely check out the the bank civilized bank and in terms of the Podcast bankingthefuture.com, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I think we topped 100 episodes just the other week. So nice. We, um, yeah, published weekly. It's fun. A lot, a lot of the initial episodes were kind of one-on-one deep dives around specific subject areas within fintech. It's always founders, CEOs, um, investors, the odd fintech commentator. And um, more recently, we've kind of expanded the format a, a little bit, made it a bit more social, a bit more dynamic, uh, pulled in some some different views. Carlos, you should join us sometime for a yeah. roundtable, talk about one of these com- uh, one of these topics. Let me know. Always, always happy to. Yeah. And um, so anyway, right, bankingthefuture.com, easy to find. Great. Rebank podcast. Rebank podcast. All right. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, Will. 
Thank you. Till next time, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.